Welcome to the Replay Value Podcast, where we deep dive into the movies we all love to watch over and over again. I'm Phil, joined by my brother from the same mother, our co-host on the West Coast, Warren. What's up, bro? In the season four finale episode, we're going to talk about the epic historical action-adventure drama, Ridley Scott's Gladiator. Roman general is betrayed by a corrupt emperor when he is sentenced to death and his family murdered. He escapes but is reduced to slavery before rising through the ranks of the arena as a gladiator to have his vengeance. You know, there are certain films where you get genuinely hyped when you see the trailer. Yeah. And, and like, you know, whether it be, it could be any type of film. I'm not saying it has to be like an epic battle movie or war film or whatnot, but like when this trailer came out, it's like, the, the setting, the tone. You remember the tagline? A general who became a slave, a slave who became a gladiator, and a gladiator who defied an emperor. Like, they staged the hell out of this movie. Right, the elevator, yeah, I mean, whatever you want to call it. Like, the, yeah, the tagline, and I mean, how this movie was, it was an easy sell to me. And, you know, Ridley Scott being involved was just icing on the cake. You knew, you're like, my ass is going to be in the theater. I'm going to see that the day that it comes out. This is the top of the list or near, very near the top of the list for, for movies like that for me. Our first sword and sandal epic we've done. Yeah. But it's certainly the one with the highest replay value. I mean, there's some great sword and sandal movies. But uh, in terms of our generation, and when you think about like great action movies, when you just go to the fight scenes, uh, this is a great movie, but it has great fight scenes. Well, it does. And. I'd say a big reason that this one stands out to us, it's not like the other action movies that we grew up on. The sword and sandal genre, that was a generational thing. It started, you know, back in like the 19, the teens and the 1920s. You had, of course, the big hit Spartacus, Ben-Hur. But by the time we started ingesting action films, this genre wasn't that prevalent. So for us, Gladiator set the standard mm. for that genre. That's what we base it off of. Uh, that's where our memories are formed with these types of action films. And it just so happens to be a great dramatic film as well. Gladiator was conceived from a pitch by David Franzoni, uh, who wrote the first draft. Uh, Franzoni was inspired by Daniel uh, uh, Mannix's 1958 model, Those About to Die. But he narrowed the historic narrative after reading uh, Historia Augusta about Commodus. And that's who he ended up focusing his story on. Yeah, so the I would say that the... You know the first draft, the the passion that drove the 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 original story was rooted in in realism. What really happened for that Roman culture? That's where it started, of course. You know the the movie the movie Fran, you know movie machine happens, but Fr- Franzoni himself, it, you know he he that's where he pulled it from was from the historical record. Uh, now I do want to call out that this was part of. I mean, this he really wasn't known in Hollywood at the time. He had. Co-wrote Amistad with Steven Spielberg, which was his big entry. But this was the first story for a film that he had done by himself. Uh, He would eventually go on to do 2004's King Arthur, and he has some other credits as well. He's made a career in Hollywood. But this was 
That's like typecasting for a writer. He got King Arthur because he wrote this. <laughs> well, yeah, he got a he got a three picture deal, I think, with DreamWorks, and this was off of Amistad, right. and this was his first uh, picture of that deal. And it, he did take that a historical angle because the uh, protagonist in his first draft was named uh, Narcissus, uh, which is the wrestler who killed Commodus in real life. Yeah, so it, yeah, they had the name instead of Maximus. You're correct. So um, it was rooted in that, and then again the movie making machine has its way with it and it goes through rewrites and whatnot and becomes how what we know it is as of today and when producers get involved all bets are off yeah exactly uh, the producers yeah. approached uh, uh ridley scott and showed him the thumbs down painting by uh, jean leon jerome and that's what made ridley scott want to direct this picture his 11th feature film i thought it was interesting listening to ridley scott talk about uh his approach with directing gladiator a film like gladiator I knew I wanted to find a, a metaphor for mortality because the film at the end of the day would be partly about mortality. And uh, I wouldn't discover the symbol of that until the very last two days of photography when I was in Tuscany. And I've got a double standing in his Roman leather armor and tunic. He's standing waist deep in wheat. And he's actually stroking the corn, the wheat or the corn like that. And I, which every, if you stand with, you'd almost certainly do that. And I was watching that and thinking, right, there's the opening shot of the movie. So you get a steady cam, you follow him through, that becomes the opening of the film. It also becomes the lead into the idea of heaven, because that's where he will go eventually. And then you connect when he talks early on to Marx Aurelius, who says, tell me about your home. He's actually describing the perfection that's in his own mind, which in a funny kind of way is heaven because that's where his family died. So it all kind of connected up. And that's that. I think that very much comes out of uh, my background as, um, as uh, you know, in art school, without question. It's great to hear Ridley Scott uh, talk about the, the, the film in those terms and like having the idea, the vision of what he wanted it to be. But you know, what attracted him to the project was a passion for portraying the authentic Roman culture and telling this character's story within that. So that's where, that's why I love hearing interviews like that because you can see where the, the 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 passion for the filmmaking is driven by the passion for the subject matter itself. I mean, Scott always brings his A game. Oh, the guy of course, is, he's yeah. such a workman. Uh, uh, he he's got uh, uh, such a strong point of view and an angle on what he's making, and he spends months in preparation. One of the best world building directors there is. I mean, we're talking about Alien and Blade Runner here. Come on. True. Um, uh, spent months storyboarding this film and the, in the framework of the plot. But I, I, you have to say, when you watch this film, there are shots that it seems like it's the first film to kind of represent, um, first modern film to represent Rome on the screen. Like some of these these shots of Rome feel like a painting. Well, I mean, they they're inspired. You talked about the police verso, the um, the, the thumbs uh, down, yeah, the Jean Leon Jerome, yeah, the thumbs down painting. I mean. That almost looks like a shot from the Tigris Maximus battle that's in the sure. film. Um, so you can see, I mean, that that inspiration is to have those canvases essentially on screen, those art forms. A lot of great directors did that. I remember we talked about Leone doing that with The Good and the Bad and the Ugly. Some of those shots felt like mm-hmm. they were straight out of a painting, and they were. Yeah, so if you've got a good script to do it with uh, and, and the vision of a great director, and I mean, that's there's two big pieces right there. Talking about great director, they all have it, directing trademarks. Uh, Here's a few of Ridley Scott's. Horseback Battles, P. 
piercing sunbeams, futuristic <laughs> visions, sword fights, badass women, amber interiors, moody landscapes, and white horses, which a hmm. number of those appear in this film. Uh, you're right. I didn't, didn't think about that, but the yeah, they do have those little callbacks. Yeah, that's good. Filming lasted from January to May of 1999 in three main locations in England, Morocco, and Malta. And they shot the film in chronological order over five months, 18 of which were they actually were shooting. So they took a couple weeks off. Well, I mean, you're traveling that much. I mean, what, four or five countries that you're going to there uh, to set up and you're you're building these massive sets. I mean, I read that they built a one-third Coliseum, a replica of the Coliseum. Sure. And then, of course, you had use digital effects they didn't build the whole damn thing right. cost they, of a million dollars though i mean uh, right. no, no small task and uh, you know you always hear me talk about it. i love when directors make movies like this we talked about that with spielberg and saving private ryan building sets hiring extras i mean this was a crew of 200 a cast of 100 and over 800 extras on this movie so uh just an epic production yeah uh and uh, what we talked about you know with saving private ryan and spielberg and uh, one of the similarities of you know great battle sequences within the film and how to shoot those how to bring those to life of course much different <laughs> in ancient roman times versus you know the 1940s and world war ii uh but one similarity i'd read that they both had oddly enough considering we just did saving private ryan was that sections of the battles for both films were uh, shot in a stop motion which almost brings like this visceral, uh, more aggressive, but slowed down battle to, to, to the screen where they shoot it at eight frames per second, but then give it long exposure to increase it to 24 frames per second, the, you know, a st- more standard time to where it looks like the sword is like slowed down. Think about that first battle with uh, Maximus where he's like kind of stunned and looking around mm-hmm. you know, that, that, those types of filmmaking tricks, if you would want to call them that spiel, both Spielberg and Scott used to portray battles were done despite them being both very different types of battles. Yeah. We well, don't forget about the 45 degree shutter. Cause that was a big part of the effect that, that made true. it kind of correlate with saying Robert Ryan. And uh, I don't know if this was done at the direction of Scott or if this was just DP John Matheson doing this on his own and kind of borrowing from Saving Private Ryan. But funny that we do see Saving Private Ryan's great impact because it set the standard for battle scenes that they uh, they were inspired when uh, shooting this one. Yeah, and this one just being you know two years later in the 2000, Saving Private Ryan, 1998. Yeah. One thing that's odd, and this is certainly an anomaly when you're talking about great pictures, it does happen in movies, but for it to be a best picture winner, this script was being written while they were shooting it. I mean, I think we talked about that with Jaws. That was a blockbuster. Yeah. But for a film that to be considered high art and to win all these awards, and they hadn't even the script wasn't even locked. There wasn't even a locked script before they started shooting. Now they had the plot worked the out. The story from was what done. I understand. Yeah, the story's done. From what I understand, they just didn't have the dialogue. Yeah, so the specifically the character and motivations for Maximus, uh, like you know, they brought in a couple uh, extra. If you look at the credits of the story, the story it's all to David Franzoni, but the screenplay has Franzoni, John Logan, and William Nicholson as well uh, to help improve the dialogue. And much of that was at Ridley Scott's behest. Uh, he wanted to improve the dialogue, improve the characters. So Logan was one that 
introduced the death of Maximus's family to have a motivation for the character, the friendship with Juba. And kind of up the stakes a little bit, yeah. Yes, humanize the character, yeah. Uh, yeah, well, there is some funny uh, uh, like urban legend about on set with Russell Crowe kind of uh, being frustrated with some of the dialogue, and I'm paraphrasing, but I think there was one time he said to John Logan or the on-set writer that your lines are garbage. I'm the greatest actor in the world, so I can make garbage sound good. <laughs> <laughs> no, Crowe himself has said that his reputation for uh, volatility on set is primarily driven by the experiences and the what happened on Gladiator. But to his credit, though, I mean, if, if half of this stuff is true from what I've read about the character not having much development and the things that he added in, it, he was good to fight that fight and choose that battle. Yeah, I think Elite Act, you got a lot of pressure on you. From all the things I saw from behind the scenes, he looked kind of jovial and uh, a, a very uh, light. He looked, seemed like a, a little boy on set. He uh, had a lot of energy. So Yeah, um, he looked like he was having a good time. Post-production on the movie, uh, The Mill, which is a British special effects company, they did all the visual effects work on Gladiator. Uh, Tigers uh, uh, on the blue screen, uh, they created a crowd of 35,000 people. Uh, 90 VFX shots total, uh, which their efforts ended up winning them an Oscar. Nine minutes total of, uh, of screen time. So uh, a, a lot of work they did in this movie, despite them building sets and doing a lot of it practically and for real. Uh, their most notable work in the movie, we have to mention, is the death of Oliver Reed, which happened three weeks before filming wrapped. Um, and instead of going back and reshooting the movie, uh, they ended up using a digital body double uh, at a cost of $3.2 million to, have, to be able to complete Oliver Reed's performance performance, which uh, I think is something we haven't seen very often. Most recently, we saw them have to do that with the Fast and Furious uh, film with Paul Walker. Yeah. And, you know, Disney is taking to do that more in Marvel with actors like, you know, taking Kurt Russell as the young version in Guardians of the Galaxy 2 or uh, Robert Downey Jr. I think it was a Captain America Civil War. Mm -hmm. they, they've done that. And it may, you know, I may be dumbing it down, but you know that digital technology where it's like a 3D mask on a body double of, of the original actor. Um, so this was one of the earliest examples of where it was done, believably well, and it was done, you know, in, in an honorable way. You know, he they mm -hmm. wanted to finish this performance. They you don't want to recast yeah. the actor. I mean, he's done the. He, it is a fantastic performance that he put on. So they helped him finish it. Some classic references in the film, uh, and these are some big, big titles. Uh, Kubrick's 1957, Paths of Glory, 1959's Ben-Hur. Kubrick's uh, another film, 1960's Spartacus. That's one of the most obvious ones. That and uh, The Fall of the Roman Empire, you can see where the plot is heavily inspired by both of those pictures. Uh, 1973's Enter the Dragon, uh, all three Star Wars films, and 1979's Caligula. Yeah, Caligula, of course, yeah. It's going to make an, an appearance. Yeah. Well, this was a more realistic Rome in this picture. I, you know, uh, one thing that I think Scott did a great job doing is we don't see him lounging around eating grapes and drinking from goblets. Uh, mm, <laughs> they, they definitely the, yeah, avoided that. Very that. cliche. Yeah. Yes. Almost an anachronistic yeah, viewpoint on the, mm. the culture. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Gladiator has one of my favorite all time scores done by the incomparable Hans Zimmer. And it, a lot of people only give him credit, but it was done and composed by Hans Zimmer and Lisa Gerard. Uh, she did a lot of the vocal composition uh, for 
which of which there's some incredible vocal composition in the soundtrack. And to kind of debunk a little bit, a lot of people confuse uh, her work with Inya. They think Inya's in this soundtrack. She did not oh, do any yeah. work on this soundtrack because the songs uh, her work does sound a little a little similar. Yeah, that, that, that's that's a good point. You're right, and I think you know, Inya gets a lot of credit for that type of vocal performance from. You know, most most people, but well, remember last year's season finale, uh, James Cameron wanted Inya to do the score for Titanic. Oh yeah, and he listened to <laughs> Inya music when he was writing Titanic. So bringing a full circle here with uh, Inya in the season four finale in Gladiator. Yeah, uh, but uh, they got the. Uh, James Horner and Celine Dion instead. So not a, not, I don't think that picture suffered. No, not at all. This is one of the top-selling movie soundtracks of all time. I have to mention that. It's ex- extremely popular. Yeah, when it's uh, Platinum's, I think it sold about 540,000 copies in the U.S. Um, so it, extremely popular, yes, like you said, for a, um, a movie soundtrack. I'll call out a couple songs here. It, it's, a, it's a score that really just blends together very well, much, you know, much like if you're watching the film. But one that is just 10 minutes of pure awesomeness. It's like track number three or four, The Battle. Okay? Like, how many times have we listened to that song in The Battle? I mean, just that. It's like that, on the workout playlist. That, yeah, that's, so, is that, that's pretty much the theme of the movie, isn't it? It is. that The motif in that is just very powerful uh, in that song. You hear it a lot in a lot of different ways. And then another one I'll mention here is Now We Are Free. I, just an incredible vocal performance by Lisa Gerard. It's at the the song at the end of the film uh, when you're know, carrying Maximus away. It just has so much emotional weight behind it. Uh, it just it, it, it captures the emotion and the time period. Like it just it bottles it all up. It's it's perfect music for a great great movie. Yeah, and that could be said for the entire soundtrack. You listen to it and you feel like. You know, this is a, a sword and sandal film, uh, epic that I'm that I'm watching. Mm. It, it puts you in the moment. Uh, the, the, the music does. Interesting thing here: producer on this soundtrack was Klaus Bedelt, who went on to become. He's gone on to compose uh, films himself. Mm. One of which is Pirates of the Caribbean: The Curse of the Black Pearl, the, the very first pirates film. Hans Zimmer was a producer on that one, but the main composer was Klaus Bedelt. And if you listen to both soundtracks, you know, side by you can see the similarities. They're musically, of, they're cut from the same cloth. Yeah. Oh yeah, the collaboration between the two it, it comes off. I mean, I, I can almost even hear a little bit of the rock sometimes with the Gladiator soundtrack, which Z- Zimmer also did that one. So. <laughs> and we move on to the stars of the picture. All right, Mr. Demille, I'm ready for my close-up. As is usually the case, quite an ensemble. Two best actor Oscar winners. One for this movie, uh, two Oscar nominees, and one Emmy winner. Another way to phrase this cast, Philip: we got Superman's dad, <laughs> Wonder Woman's mom, and the, the Joker. Joker. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's funny. Those are our three leads. <laughs> wow, I did not think of it that way, but man, <laughs> that's very good. Uh, man, uh, and we got to start at the top of the call sheet with Oscar winner and two-time nominee Russell Crowe as General Maximus Decimus Meridius. Uh, he won the Oscar for this movie, his 21st film, uh, his first of seven collaborations with Ridley Scott. Can't believe he's done seven Neither movies with Ridley Holy Scott. Sh- yeah, wow. that's uh, quite a bit. But uh, Russell Crowe said, you know, the reason he ended up taking this picture is uh, they asked, uh, I think they asked him on the actor's studio, uh, and he said, well, it's a $100 million movie. You're directed by Ridley Scott, and you get to play a Roman general. And he was totally down. And this is not only his favorite role, this is his favorite movie that he's ever been a part of. And how could could it not be this is an actor's dream you win best actor 
actor Oscar in a film that also wins the Best Picture Oscar. That's the closest oh, thing yeah. an actor ever gets to winning a championship and an MVP trophy along with it. Well, I think the next year was A Beautiful Mind, of which he was nominated and lost. Yeah. So he almost won two in a row. He should have won for that more than Maximus. I love this movie, but his work in A Beautiful Mind, man, is it's hard to imagine. Denzel Washington should have won for The Hurricane this year and Correct. beaten it for Maximus. And Russell Crowe should have beaten Denzel Washington on a training day and won for Beautiful Mind. Yeah, absolutely. It's just my yes. opinion. No, no, you were 100% correct on that, yeah. Those two guys were titans. They were slugging it out there for a couple years. Yeah, Denzel and Hurricane, though, the fact, yeah, I mean, he he should have won over Crow in this film. Well, it's funny we're talking about those two guys being titans. They both worked together in a Ridley Scott movie later, American Gangster, and they <laughs> also right, worked yeah. in a movie before this, Virtuosity. That uh, movie not is that well received. not it's very good. It's really not nice. great. But talking about them slugging it out for a couple years, Russell Crowe had, like, we talked Tom Hanks, in the last episode, having like an all-time run of the 90s, Russell Crowe had a hell of a run here in the late 90s. I mean, like a golden championship run. L.A. Confidential in 97, The Insider in 99, this in 2000, and then Beautiful Mind in 2001. Wow. And then the run kind of starts to dry up in 2002 with uh, Master Commander. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, that movie is you either love it or hate it. I mean, it's one of those, but... He is in. Uh, he's making a resurgence, though. As far as you know, I loved him in the Nice Guys. He's going to be in the new Thor movie. So I mean, he's one of the best actors of I say of our generation. Oh, no doubt. And you know, my drama teacher would rave about a couple of actors: Leonardo DiCaprio. Adam Driver, like Marlon Brando, Adam Driver, and Russell Crowe. He just felt that these actors just are just master actors in terms of what they're able to do. And uh, Crowe is at his apex in this film. I mean, I think he this is as good as he's been, and he's been great for a long time. Uh, and I got to say this before we move on. That is why... Russell Crowe as Maximus is the MVP. He gives the most valuable performance. It's the subtlety, the power, uh, the, he, it's it's the presence that he has. He commands respect with his behavior, how he comes off, how he carries himself. He has those uh, defiant moments, and he just chooses to really play things in a subdued way, and it, it just ultimately makes it land even more impactful because of the way that he'll that he, that he plays things. Russell Crowe is just masterful work here. It, it, it's really hard to play a badass like this, and he does it so convincingly you don't even question it. Yeah, it, there's a strong silent type quality to it um, that I, I feel like where he is still humanized, and part of that goes back to what we were talking about earlier with the writing. And you know, credit credit do where it's due. Yes, the rewrites by Logan and Nicholson. Those did help somewhat, but let's be real. I mean, Russell Crowe was a driving factor around a lot of that. I mean, there were scenes where they'd go to shoot, they didn't have dialogue, and Ridley Scott would say, okay, mm-hmm. here's the setup, here's the scenario, what would you say? You know, what would you do? You know, put it in the thought of the mentality of the character, and it was Crowe that brought that to life, where this could have been a very bland portrayal of a Roman general and a gladiator. Oh, sure. And he brought the humanity that the, yeah just the way he turns his head or gives a gaze it just it, it brings so much life and, and and believability to it little things like rubbing the soil before a battle you know that was crow that, that's one of my favorite some of my favorite moments in the movie and and i would actually remember did that before i played football for a while i would <laughs> rub my hands that way yeah we, a lot of us did that so. and there's no telling how many people that inspired to do that oh for sure but like the speech about his farm you know that was 
based upon his own farm. You know, that he thought, I mean, that that's where that came from, that inspiration. His memory of home has become uh, idealized a little bit. You know what I mean? Like the memory has become uh, glorified somewhat. He right. just uh, you, yearns to be back with his family so much. Yeah, but uh, this can't, cannot be overstated how much Crow brought to this character and to this performance. And we talk about all the great nuances that he gave in his performance, but, you know, I thought it was interesting hearing him talk about one thing he did in his performance, the accent. I mean, I'm using a very pure Royal Shakespeare Company two pints after lunch accent. With all my heart, no. If I wanted to do Antonio Banderas with better elocution, but um, really didn't think that was such a good idea. You know, he thought everybody would find it a giggle. So he wanted to use, a, you know, uh, what is basically a device in these type of epic, epic movies where... You know, you speak in that slightly haughty English tone. And um, to me, I, you know, I used to take the, the mickey out of Ridley quite regularly with that, you know. My name is Maximus Decimus Meridius, General of the Felix Legion and Commander of the Armies of the North, Olay. And every now and then you'd get a laugh out of that. Man, even hearing him talk there, you know, I thought about being a jokester on set. He, you can tell he doesn't take himself too seriously. Yeah. Uh, he seems to have a pretty good uh, attitude. That's good. <laughs> he's probably <laughs> he's such he's a probably, joker. A, probably a pretty funny guy to hang out with, have a beer with. Yeah. <laughs> Doing, drinking a couple pints. Yeah. Walking yeah. um, Phoenix is Commodus. Uh, my intro to Walking Phoenix was to die for with uh, Kidman and Dylan. Uh, that was his breakout movie. Uh, really elevated him, and and you know he's been working ever since then. But this, I I, I feel like uh, this performance that elevated the movie and his career to another level. Uh, this movie wouldn't be what it is without Joaquin Phoenix. Uh, you have to have a great antagonist. Every great movie needs a great villain to elevate it to these heights. And man, does Joaquin Phoenix deliver in spades, or does he not? He does, I, and there's no surprise that he did, of course, go on to win an Academy Award for Best uh, Actor. But, I mean, just even being introduced to the zeitgeist, of, you know, most people know him from this film first. And it's so it speaks to his ability, because a lesser actor, they would be this role. They would be this villain. You hate them, and that's all they are. Uh, and they, mm-hmm. they don't have – for the rest of their career, they're always the person that was the villain in Gladiator. Um, so for him to reinvent himself. Yeah, it's a himself. good point. Yeah, it's like Christian Bale with Batman, or even it looks like Andrew Garfield with Spider-Man. Like they end up being such great actors and showing their range that uh, they're able to to crawl out of that attachment and, and not be just associated with only that. Right. I mean, it, it's tough to do. I mean, you look at how many Star Wars actors are associated only with Star Wars, but somehow like a Harrison mm-hmm. Ford or a Natalie Portman, you know, they go on to you know, rebrand themselves and have tons of different iconic roles. Yeah. And I think we got another one in the works here with Phoenix because he's working with Ridley Scott right now in a movie about Napoleon called Kitbag. That's the working title anyway. Yeah. With uh, Vanessa Kirby as uh, Empress Josephine. Uh, take my money. I have already bought my ticket. To yeah. That. It's in pre-production. So don't get too excited. I didn't even put a release date out there for oh, you. And I hope I get an audition for that. I hope they're shooting here. In the oh, West God. Coast. Oh God! Fingers crossed. Well, knowing Scott, he'll go. He'll be authentic. He'll go to France to do it. So, if it's about Napoleon, so Connie Nielsen as Lucilla. My introduction to her was Devil's Advocate. You know, yes. uh, Al Pacino, Keanu yes. Reeves movie. That was her breakout film. I think that was her second movie at the time, and then she just took off. She had just worked nonstop after that. Uh, much like a lot of actors on the call sheet, it was her seventh movie, uh, and she's 
been in a lot of movies since. I mean, well, most recently here the with the the uh, DC extended the cinematic universe playing uh, as I mentioned earlier Wonder Woman's mom. Yes, I mean, and she's played that one at least three or four movies. Am I am I crazy? I mean, she's been in it a lot. She portrays a badass very well, whether it be in well, a more subdued badass in Gladiator, more of a political, intelligent, clever badass, and then of course, mm-hmm. you know, physical badass in in, in Wonder Woman. Uh, but yeah, she sure. portrays that that type of role very well. Uh, one of the things that I love when actors do is they're able to like go out and make creative choices and find something as a prop that kind of helps them connect to the character. She apparently found a 2,000-year-old ring in an antique store and wore it in the movie. What? Now- and there's something about that ring. I don't know. It could be apocryphal, but there's something when you see that ring, it does kind of jump out at you like uh, the, there's some authenticity to it. It's not a prop. You know, it does feel real. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, it's, it's good. Yeah. I mean, anything, I guess as an actor to tie you into the character and, and make you feel like you relate to it. I read that and I remember the ring being memorable enough to feel like that might actually be true. Fair enough. Fair enough. Okay. I'll buy it. BAFTA nominee Oliver Reed as uh, Broximo. And as we mentioned earlier, he unfortunately passed away during filming uh, three weeks before they wrapped. Uh, this was uh, ultimately uh, his last on-screen role. He did end up with 122 screen credits. Wow. What a career. What a career. I mean, he's some... Of course, I most know him from Gladiator, uh, but, uh, you know, he is just... Uh, Don't know him from anything else. He's kind of before our time. You know, there, there's a lot of uh, funny stories about, uh, legendary stories about Reed's drinking when he was shooting this movie. We're not going to get into some of that stuff, but uh, he had an arrangement with Scott uh, that he said uh, he only worked till 5 p.m. After that, the day belonged to him. And Scott was like, it's understood. Because I think uh, Scott and Reed kind of knew he was only holding it together till 5 because he probably, you know, he was drinking when he was working. So after five, you couldn't get anything out of him. You know, by then he's just too drunk. Wow. What a legend. Uh, Franzoni modeled the Proximo character on a Hollywood agent. So funny Jeez. enough, uh, I feel like uh, Regis nails it, particularly in the opening yeah. scene as the merchant's like, you sold me queer giraffes. I want my money back. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> he, he establishes himself. They don't mate. They just wander around eating. He establishes himself very quickly. Yeah. Two-time Oscar nominee, Jamon Huntsu as Juba. My introduction to him was Amistad. Amistad, yeah, which considering yeah, David Franzoni, yeah. I wonder if there's a connection there. Like he recommended. Also DreamWorks connection, too. Fair enough. So yeah. maybe the studio yeah. felt comfortable uh, going with him again. Yeah. Uh, and he's had a hell of a career. Uh, after this, you know, the Laura Kraft uh, movie with Angelina Jolie, uh, Constantine, and probably my favorite, uh, if it's not the... I got to say, it's probably Blood Diamond with Leo. Am I right? Yeah. Yeah, he's very good. It's got to be Blood Diamond with Leo. He's really, really, really good in that. Uh, Guardians of the Galaxy, How to Train Your Dragon 2, and most recently, uh, Furious 7, Aquaman, and Captain Marvel. So, yeah, he's dipped his toe in both the uh, Marvel Cinematic and uh, DC Cinematic Universes. Yeah, he is a great character actor. I mean, he pops up as one of those, like, I know him, and also an Oscar uh, nominee. So A couple times, actually. This is early in his career, too. This is only his seventh movie. Oh, wow. Uh, So, But still pretty early on, yeah. He's got some comedic chops now. He has some some banter with Star Lord in the Guardians of the Galaxy. So yeah, that is he is pretty good. He's pretty good. Yeah, he's, <laughs> he's got some range. He's I love him. Uh, two-time Oscar nominee Richard Harris is uh, Marcus Aurelius, and he unfortunately passed away in two thousand and two. Yeah, no, it's he went from this in two thousand Gladiator, two thousand one, and he was Dumbledore. He was the OG Dumbledore. Uh, in the first two Harry Potter films, like I know we've we've brought that up before, but you know that that's what that to me he's Dumbledore. You know that that's what I always uh, connect with him as. Oh man, yeah, great actor with so many memorable roles. 
co-stars the Gladiator, two-time Emmy winner Derek Jacoby as Senator Gracchus. Uh, some memorable parts. I think he's really uh, uh, very specific and uh, hits a hit, hits a musical note uh, with the character. Yeah, he, he makes some very specific decisions. Yeah, everyone's very well cast in this film. Yeah, yeah. Uh, David Schofield as Falco, Commodus is right hand man. Uh, also, uh, was in American Werewolf in London. That's that's where I know him from. Uh, Thomas Arena as Quintus. Uh, man, this guy is one of those faces you know. Don't know his name. He's been in so many good movies: Tombstone, L.A. Confidential, Pearl Harbor, Born Supremacy, uh, The Dark Knight Rises, and uh, most recently here, Succession. Tommy Flanagan as Cicero, Maximus is right hand man, and this was Wallace's. Uh, one one of William Wallace's right hand guys in a Braveheart. Uh huh. Yeah. So uh, talk about being in two great epic Best Picture winners, uh, and being a main character on the good side with our hero in Maximus and William Wallace. And someone ends up betraying both of them in each of the films. You know, uh, at least playing a part in the betrayal. Well, Gladiator, he gets killed uh, in. Uh, well, in Vengeance, I think he gets killed in Braveheart, but on, but he gets his uh, he gets his vengeance in Braveheart. Yeah, that's fair. Yeah, that's I love that scene when they take the fort. Oh, it's great. Ralph Moeller as Hagen. Uh, the, if Maximus's right hand man was Juba, his left hand man <laughs> yeah. was Hagen. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, what I, yeah. yeah, yeah. What I most know uh, uh, this actor from though is uh, Universal Soldier. If you remember, oh, he's got a, yeah. a part in that. He plays one of the one of the soldiers. Yeah, wow. And Tony Curran as Assassin Number One, a guy that uh, tries to kill Maximus before he uh, escapes. All right, stats and accolades of Gladiator release date. The front end of summer blockbuster season, May 4th, 2000, on a budget of $103 million. Uh, back then, you know, if you're breaking $100 million for a budget, this is a huge, huge film. This would be $300 plus million today. Uh, opening weekend, number one uh, with $34.8 million. It was actually number one for its first two weeks. Stayed in the top five for six straight weeks. Uh, so huge success, especially for a rated R film when it came out. Domestically, it would go on to make $187.7 million. Worldwide, $465.3 million. Which ranked number two for the year at the box office. Big hit. I mean, especially, again, you know, this was a bona fide hit. Uh, from the R-rated film to finish that high. Yeah, exactly. Lot, yeah. Yeah. Especially back then. Maybe now it wouldn't really matter. Whole Media was released on DVD later in 2000 in November, uh, on Blu-ray in 2009, and on Ultra HD Blu-ray in 2018. And I'm sure there'll be some other version they'll find a way to monetize here in the next couple of years. Uh, they'll, they'll package it and release it in some other fashion. Well, I heard like when it was first released on Blu-ray, the quality wasn't that good, and people upset a lot of the fans. So I think that's one of the reasons it got re-remastered again for Blu-ray. Well, and the special features are terrific. At least the ones they got on Apple. It's got like four hours of special features. It's an, an hour longer than the edition, movie. Yeah. yeah. As we talked about rated R, uh, zero F-bombs. Uh, they didn't use that back then. So Yeah, that's fair. Yeah, makes sense. And a body count of 117. <laughs> 62 in that opening battle sequence in Germania alone, the uh, you know un- unleash hell sequence. At least, and, uh, at least, yeah, at least, yeah. And then uh, uh, of all the the body count, though, 31 of those are by Maximus. <laughs> wow, dude is just a force. He's no John Wick. I think that was like I got 77 <laughs> in the first Wick film. Scores of the film: uh, Rotten Tomatoes, 77 percent. Surprising Cinema score A. Yeah, kind of mixed here, and a Metacritic 67. 
Yeah, I don't, I don't get that. I don't, I don't understand it. Uh, yeah, it, it was a uh, mixed. Uh, Roger Ebert, uh, two out of four stars. He did not like it. He uh, said it was muddy, fuzzy, and uh, indistinct, and said the terrible effects were. Uh, he, he hated them, uh, despite the, the fact that it would go on to win the Oscar <laughs> for best visual effects. Um, I'm sure it's one of the situations on his great movies list where he went back and corrected his review. And if you go yeah. back and read a lot of those Roger Ebert corrected reviews, he never mentions the fact that he shit canned it in the first review. He's just acting like he always loved it. Uh, but then what are you going to do? You're going to go back and admit you're wrong. I mean, come on. Replay value wise, it's up there. I mean, it, again, we've said this before. The critics, they, yeah, they get it wrong sometimes, even the best ones. Yeah, Kenneth Turan with the LA Times, he shit canned it too. So another, another great critic who got it wrong. Uh, Rolling Stone, uh, The Hollywood Reporter, Variety, and Entertainment Weekly all gave it a positive review. So uh, it was like I said, it was a mixed bag. Mixed bag, okay. Awards of the film, it won five Oscars, uh, including Best Picture, which made it the first winner in 51 years not to win for writing or directing. Huh. Uh, it won also for Best Actor, Best Costume Design, Best Sound, and Best Visual Effects, along with another seven nominations. And once again, Ridley Scott was robbed. How do we live in a world where Ridley Scott does not have an Oscar? It's insanity. Yeah, it's crazy. This shows how much they get it wrong. I mean, Hitchcock and Tarantino don't have a Best Directing Oscar. Well, what the fuck? That's true. I mean, yeah. I mean, sometimes, sometimes it's just the flavor of the week or who, who wins. But uh, the the doesn't change the fact that they're some of the, the best of all time. It also won five BAFTAs and the AFI Award Winner Movie of the Year. Ten of those. It's basically the, the ten best films of the year uh, designated by the American Film Institute. Another 53 wins and 99 nominations. So, mixed bag with the critics, but a heavily decorated film. Music of the Year 2000. Grammy Record of the Year was Beautiful Day by U2. This was the the renaissance of U2 then making a comeback with the with the, with the album uh, it was released in October of 2000 so it did not actually have a presence on the Billboard Hot 100 until 2001 uh, where it did get a place on the charts there uh, the Billboard Hot 100 though for 2000 was Breathe by Faith Hill which you know it's a good song um, I, I think of uh, number the number two on the list that year was Smooth by Santana and Rob Thomas. I mean, that song now, come on now. You, speak my you love that song. It's a great song. Top of the box office, number one for the year, Mission Impossible 2. That was a big movie. Number three for the year, Castaway. Number four, What Women Want. Number seven, Meet the Parents. And number nine, X-Men, which is more or less the first modern-day superhero film. That's some big films that year. Wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Rezzy Winter, Worst Picture, Battlefield Earth. <laughs> okay. Barry Pepper film, yeah. Barry Pepper yeah. film. Saving Private Ryan. John Travolta movie, yeah. yeah. Also, yeah, uh, Ron L. Hubbard book, yeah. Piece terrible. of shit. Yeah. yeah. TV of the year, Top Nelson scripted shows, ER, Friends, Everybody Loves Raymond, and Law and Order. Emmy winner, best drama series, The West Wing, and Emmy winner for best comedy series, Sex in the City. I think I was, I think I was when Sopranos was losing to West Wing. We we're like, what the yeah. hell? It's funny though to see some of those shows like we're talking about. Them. They're having reunions now on HBO Max or some other type revival of reboot, series, re- you know, or, revival series, yeah. revival things. So it's just like the they were at the peak. It's come down. Now it's going back up. Average movie ticket price in two thousand five dollars and thirty nine cents. Adjusted for inflation, seven dollars and eighty two cents. Events of the year: Sony released the PS two. Tiger Woods became the youngest player to win a Grand Slam in golf. 
Y2K passes with no, without any serious widespread malfunction or computer failures. <laughs> uh, the dot-com bubble burst. Uh, the Summer Olympics were held in Sydney, Australia. And George W. Bush defeats Al Gore by less than 600 votes to become the 43rd president of the United States. All right, we will move on to our best scenes and lines from Gladiator, a sword and sandals epic that is full of great scenes and memorable lines. Warren, let's start with your runner-up for best scene. My runner-up best scene is when Maximus makes it to the Colosseum and is able to confront Commodus in the arena for the first time since he's been betrayed. Your fame is well-deserved, Spaniard. I don't think there's ever been a Gladiator to match you. With this young man, he insists you are Hector reborn. Was it Hercules? Why doesn't the hero reveal himself and tell us all your real name? You do have a name. My name is Gladiator. How dare you show your back to me? Slave! Will you remove your helmet and tell me your name? My name is Maximus Decimus Meridius, commander of the armies of the North, general of the Felix Legions, loyal servant to the true emperor, Marcus Aurelius, father to a murdered son, husband to a murdered wife, and I will have my vengeance in this life or the next. That was also my runner-up. All right. Yeah. Catch up. Best friends. Yep. Yeah, I mean, it's just a powerful moment. I mean, the performances by Crow. You literally, the, you see Joaquin Phoenix shit himself. Yeah, the, the performance by Phoenix, though. Yeah, the shock. <laughs> it's so great. Of, of seeing that. I mean, he without just, saying a line, he just says it with his face. He's on top of the world, and all of a sudden, this this fucker's back in his life. Um, but <laughs> they love him, not me. Yeah. Am I not merciful? Um, all right. Uh, well, uh, that was easy enough. Okay. What about your, what was your winner? My winner. It's got to be the ultimate. If there's a Super Bowl gladiator event, it's Maximus versus Tigris. Uh, the great gladiator coming out of retirement to fight Maximus. It, it's 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 what we got. Brady versus Manning. Uh, it, it's it's what all the gladiator fans of the day want. It's uh, what it's Mahomes versus Brady in last year's Super Bowl. It's just the ultimate gladiator event. Caesar is pleased to bring you the only undefeated champion in Roman history, the legendary Titus They pull out all the stops. We've got the animals coming in with the tigers. Love it. Uh, yeah. It's amazing. It, it To me, it is the ultimate fight scene in this film. Got to go with it. Yeah, no, that's a great choice. I see why you did it, uh, especially because you have like the Maximus the Merciful thing at the end where he you know, defies the, the, the emperor's decisions there and still has the crowd on his side because of it. So I, 
I, I love that you picked that. I did have it as an honorable mention. It, it should have, honestly, hearing you describe it, I don't know why I didn't have it higher. However, my winner is, I, I guess what it, it represents, what the character, uh, how he built himself back up to the level of respect where you could, you take you strip away from his titles and everything. And he still is a leader of men and a badass. And it's that scene where he's at the lesser arena, but you've got him in the back of like the little caravan with all the others. They're like, you know, they're saying this, it, it, it mirrors the opening battle sequence in a lot of ways where all the, the soldiers are looking at him, looking at him as the leader. The rose petals are, you know, they're, they're falling on him and he just goes in and wrecks everybody. Uh, and he's already got the crowd on the side, but that moment where he is rebuilt himself. He's a star up. already. Uh, yes, yeah. And, exactly. and I, I would say that I almost had that as my runner up before I settled, uh, settled on the uh, Maximus confronting communists. That that's very close. That's my third favorite scene. And that is my, yep. my top honorable mention. I love he, like the staging when he's sitting there and they start yes. Spaniard, Spaniard, Spaniard. And he's walking up and they all lift their swords in respect. And the pedals are falling, as you said, and then he just walks out. Well, there's like, I counted six, what, maybe seven guys that he just dispatches in like a minute. Uh, but all three of those, your winner with the, the Tigress fight, the, the all three were in the top, similar to how I had it. And, and also those scenes have the highest replay value, yeah. ha- having the most action. Absolutely. I had a couple more as honorable mentions. Uh, one is early in the film where Maximus is sent to be executed and escapes it. Yes, I also had that was a great, great sequence. And then my last one here is when uh, Senator Gracchus schools Commodus in the ways of politics. It's the very problem, isn't it? My father spent all his time at study, at books, learning, and philosophy. He spent his twilight hours reading scrolls from the Senate. And all the while, the people were forgotten. But the Senate is the people, sire. Chosen from among the people to speak for the people. I doubt many of the people eat so well as you do, Gracchus. Or have such splendid mistresses, Gaius. I think I understand my own people. Then perhaps Caesar will be so good as to teach us out of his own extensive experience. There's some great shots that feel like it's from the back of a dollar bill there. Uh, (laughs) You know, there's some really good shots of the Senate there when he's spinning his sword on the floor. Yeah, I love that scene. Yeah, and you don't get a lot of scenes like that with in a confrontational way of a communist talking to the Senate. So. You also just see how unqualified and out of touch he is. It just tell it, it tells you everything you need to know about a communist, and it just makes us hate him even more. Right, because you could hate him, but like if he was at least capable, he would have. A, he has no redeeming qualities at all. You have a certain level of respect from him. Right. All right. What other honorable mentions did you have? A scene I love is when Aurelius is meeting with Maximus privately after battle, and he offers him the position to succeed him as the defender of Rome after he dies. And he, I love it when he goes, There is one more duty that I ask of you before you go home. What would you have me do, Caesar? 
I want you to become the protector of Rome after I die. I will empower you to one end alone, to give power back to the people of Rome and end the corruption that has crippled it. And you accept this great honor that I have offered you? With all my heart, no. must be you that's such a great fucking scene and, and that's so well written because that is true if someone reacts you're like this guy has to be in charge because he's not going to cor be corrupted the best people for a position of power are the those who don't want it sometimes you know and that that are capable of doing it but don't crave it and another honorable mention is the first battle in the Colosseum. We really get to see Maximus's leadership uh, on display of how he kind of takes command of the group. Uh, one of them even recognizes him. I served under you in Vindabona. You're like, what the fuck? <laughs> like, <laughs> how badass is Maximus? Like, this guy's like, yeah, he's a general. Anyone here been in the army? Yes. I served with you at Vindabona. You can help me. Whatever comes out of these gates... We've got a better chance of survival if we work together. Do you understand? If we stay together, we survive. Pleased to be you, the legionnaires of Scipio But they all kind of unite under Maximus. And dude, there's some, you know, he's kind of telling them, hold the line and you know, stay with me. And dude, one of the best moments is when he gets on the horse and he's coming around and Juba's like Maximus and he throws him the sword you know and he starts whipping it and he's working the crowd and even even get it. it's a great movie moment and Scott has the awareness to cut the commonest even going ooh you know because it you is kind like of a movie moment yeah. like, ah, you know. uh, but it's a great moment we are we are just so excited in this scene. He also, in that sequence, they slow down the frame rate and he slits the throat of the uh, archers on the uh, chariots. It's a great sequence. And uh, that's where, you know, you talk about the first battle scene. We see him. That's the, kind of the minor leagues when he's in the gladiator scene Fair. in Spain. Okay. Yeah. And then he becomes a star in the minors. This is when he becomes a star in the majors, okay, when he's at the, the Coliseum as a gladiator. This is his showcase in the big leagues. And he delivers. Because it's not just him, too. He's leading all the men. He, and they essentially, I mean, they snatch victory from the jaws of defeat. They were supposed to lose. Yeah. And I, I, I even love how Broxemo, they cut to Broxemo, and he's just sitting there laughing. <laughs> like, those are his guys. Well, just happy they Before that, it. going into it, they're like, hey, enjoy watching all your men die and all that. So, like, they, I mean, he was setting him up for failure. And they were his best gladiator, so Broxemo wasn't happy about it. But what's he going to do, get pissed off at the emperor? Yeah, or not get paid. Sure, yeah. All right, our best lines from the film. I'll kick things off with my runner-up uh, for best line. It is... Are you not entertained? Are you not entertained? Is this not why you are here? It's my winner. That's your winner. Oh, yeah, man. Yeah, so, so almost matched up. Almost. Well, you know the old expression. Did we just become best friends? Nope. Well, okay. What was your runner-up then? My runner-up. Brothers! What we do in life echoes in eternity. 
That was my winner. <laughs> so we totally just met. Well, we could have almost matched three out of the four. Wow. Yeah. And, and I came close on the scenes, too. But, man, that's funny. Oh. Well, double uh, misfire. Shoot. <laughs> All right. Uh, got a lot of honorable mentions here. I mean, it is a film that's got a lot of great quotes. Um, I love that one of the recurring ones, Strength and Honor. 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 Yeah. At my signal, unleash hell. At my signal, unleash hell. Gotta have that one in there. Which, Gotta have that one. Yeah, yeah, of course. I love, and this is just me personally, I love the line where I think Commodus says something to the effect like, I'm not afraid of you. And Maximus says, I think you've been afraid all your life. Mm-hmm. Some good exchanges. And that kind of goes hand in hand with another line in that scene when he goes, I knew a man who once said death smiles at us all. All a man can do is smile back. Maximus's state of mind in that situation, he's just like, I got nothing to lose. Fuck you. Let's get it on. Yeah. yeah <laughs> I just love did. it. Yeah. Yeah. I do want to have, call out a couple that I have here. One is between Proximo and Maximus when I guess the Praetorian Guard is coming to kill them all. And Proximo gives him the keys and Maximus replies back to him. Proximo, are you in danger of becoming a good man? You could tell like their, their their relationship has come full circle. He looks at him as an equal at that point. It's kind of like Proximo's closest thing to his arc in the film. Yes, like exactly. Like his interaction with Maximus has had an impact on him for the better. Yeah. Uh, and then my last one here is... They call for you. The general who became a slave. The slave who became a gladiator. The gladiator who defied an emperor. It's funny we come this close to matching up on the winner and runner-up because all of our honorable mentions are almost different. Um, last couple I have here is... Uh, Your false as a son is my failure as a father. I love that line. It's a great line. And then um, a one by Gracchus. Great performance. He has to have one good line in here. He's got some good line deliveries, too. The beating heart of Rome is not the marble of the Senate. It's the sand of the Colosseum. You bring them death. And they will love him for it. Yeah, that's good. And, and that, that's a big theme of the movie is the power of the crowd over the power of a dictator. Yeah. Moving on to Judge Bob's recasting court, where Warren and I recast the film with today's stars. All rise for the Honorable Judge Bob, presiding. Gentlemen, you may be seated. Recasting court is in session. All right, fellas, love this movie. Can't wait to hear what you have for it. This one takes me back all the time to where I was the first time I saw it. I, I just This was one of those movies that had a huge impact um, on, on my just perception of movies and how amazing they could be. That's, that's how good this is uh, for the time frame when it came out. Of course, you all know that. We'll hear a casting for Juba, Marcus Aurelius, Proximo, Lucilla, Commodus, and Maximus. Warren, um, mm -hmm. this ball is in your court. Who do you have as Juba? Yeah. So basking in my victory. Oh, wow. Uh, okay. <clears throat> yeah, take that. Mm. 
Put that in your pipe and smoke it. Uh, okay, so for my Juba, um, the Robin to Maximus is Batman. Uh, Maximus is closest ally and friend. Uh, they relate with each other. They they have common ground. Maximus's family was taken from him. Uh, Juba was taken from his family. Uh, so they very quickly develop a friendship. Uh, Got to go with an actor here who uh, who just embodies a badass, but uh, also uh, friendship and loyalty. Uh, a solid actor here, Jonathan Majors. Mm, uh, hasn't done that many that many credits yet, but he's an up and comer. I think he's a big star in the making. Lovecraft Country is the first thing I saw him in, and uh, he's got a lot of big projects lined up. So I, I think he would be great as Juba. Yeah, he's about to he's about to blow up. I mean, Lovecraft Country was big for him. I mean, he hosted SNL this past year, and um, he was in the, the Harder They Fall, I think, the Netflix film. So yeah, he's he's an up and comer. I, I used him earlier in the season, and Jerry Maguire is my. Um, Rod Tidwell, great actor. I love him. Uh, so that's that's a great choice uh, for Juba. I love that. We were aligned somewhat as far as what we're going for. I mean, someone that can be the friend, the the kind of this right hand man, so to speak, and in, in this scenario, mm-hmm. uh, but that is a badass and is going to hold themselves, uh, you know, can hold their own in the in the, in the Coliseum. It's a guy you want to go to war with. You're like, right, yeah, I'll, exactly. I'll, I'll, I'll fight with this guy. Right. I went with Winston Duke. Uh, he played um, yeah. Mbaka in, um, in the uh, Black Panther film. Uh, so he's- Don't want some muscle. Of, go, go muscle. Exactly. Yeah. All right. Wow, guys. Both of you. Wow. These are- I, I don't know how to pick between the two. This is fantastic. So I had to look at these, uh, these characters and, and where Juba is. I, I really think that Winston Duke- Duke has the face and body for this. Jonathan Majors is beautiful. That guy is just, he has has a gorgeous, gorgeous man. Winston Duke's more of a Hagen. He's actually more of a Hagen, I think, the other guy. Oh, the the, the big, so, yeah, big, big the bigger guy. guy. Yeah. yeah, I think he's more of a Hagen, quite frankly. Uh, Majors is more Juba. And, and Jonathan Majors is extremely ripped. And if we listen to this podcast in five years, he's probably going to be one of the biggest actors out there right now. That guy is he is an unbelievably bright star that is on the rise. Love Jonathan Majors. I think Winston Duke has that look. It's a different look that that needs to be in Juba. Uh, Winston Duke is going to take this one. Well done, Phil. He's Hagen. Yeah, well, uh, he could play he's a, both. He's a Hagen. I mean, there's a lot of. Uh, he's more Hagen. Whatever. All right, Phil, keep it rolling. Who is your Marcus Aurelius? Uh, Marcus Aurelius. I mean. Not in a ton of the movie. I mean, I think in the first 30, 45 minutes, and then you know, he's out. But his spirit lingers throughout the whole movie. He uh, mm-hmm. is the motivator behind a lot of what Maximus and Commodus do. I mean, he his you know, he, he he's present even without being on screen, his character is. Mm. Um, yeah. So I went with someone that has the gravitas of an emperor uh, that could, you know, command the Roman legions, the Roman army, the 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 Roman Empire. Went with Ian McKellen. All right. One of the finest stage actors. Okay. Hey, love Ian McKellen. Uh, you know, it's you're pulling from the right pool here. There's definitely like a pool of like 10 or 15 actors you're pulling from. Yeah. Um, first one I almost went with, you know, was Michael Kine. <laughs> okay. Not quite a good fit. Yeah. I cast, and he's much better for this. And I, I think, how could you not? It, it, when I thought of him, there's no one else. Anthony Hopkins. <laughs> 
Talk about gravitas <laughs> yeah, and no, an actor. He he's only got 20 or 30 minutes on screen that can make a lasting impact. We're talking about Anthony Hopkins. He won the fucking Oscar for best actor in a leading role with 15 minutes of screen time as Hannibal Lecter. If there's any actor who could deliver the punch and power with very little screen time, it's Sir Anthony Hopkins. I think, you know, again, I think we're, we're, we're pulling from the same tree here. But the funny thing is, I just want to point this out. Richard Harris, the actor that portrayed Marcus Aurelius in Gladiator, We've done one other movie this season that he was in, and that was, I'm sorry, he was a franchise he was in. We did Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban, and he played Dumbledore in the first two films before he passed away. When we recast Dumbledore, I recast Anthony Hopkins, and you recast Ian McKellen. And now wow. we're doing it here again. We've just flipped it's them. It's like reverse. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's great. Well done. And Warren, who do you have for Proximo? Oh, wait, well, who's going who's gonna to take it? Exactly. What? Anthony freaking Hopkins. Oh, yes, thank you. Thank you. Oh, well, okay, I see what you yeah. <laughs> I'm a little slow, okay? I'm, 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 a, I'm an idiot. Okay, so. No argument, gentlemen. Anthony Hopkins. Yes. Proximo is Warren. Yeah. A free gladiator who became a merchant of gladiators. Uh, uh, character who puts his interests first. Make no fans and butts about it. Uh, he's got a, he's not, you know, he's, he's got some good in him. He helps, but definitely is uh, greed is his driving force for sure. Uh, I thought of, and I think he's perfect for this, Carl Weathers. Most recently <laughs> for Mandalorian. I mean, you fit him right in here. He's perfect. I mean, I'm surprised Phil didn't think of this one. No. I, I'm pulling Carl Weathers here. Old, gruff, uh, a badass. You know he can hold his own. He's been around. Uh, he's, a, he's a fighter. He's a survivor. Listen, I actually, you know, I, I thought of someone that could, like, command the – you know his, uh, you know his fighters, and and kind of be the uh, source of power to control all of them. I went with Lawrence Fishburne, um, mm. and I've never do this, but I'm a huge Star Wars fan. I love the Mandalorian, <laughs> dude. Carl Weathers is perfect. I cannot fault you for that. He he sh- he is the better pick here. I'm going to go ahead and concede. I don't want to do it. But he's you just can't so good. do that just because you love Star Wars. No, but no, he is just a perfect fit for like I, when I just I think of him in the Proxima role, and I I hate myself that I did not pick Carl Weathers for this. He's he, I mean he he is a shoe in for. I thought of uh, Lim Neeson and uh, Forrest Whitaker. No, Those are my Carl Whitaker. Yeah. Forrest Whitaker. Yeah. yeah, I can see that. Yeah, I'll tell you what really tied the knot from my seat is looking at the images of these guys in their younger years because one of them won in the gladiator ring carl weathers is apollo creed gentlemen you know what he looked like in his younger (laughs) years (laughs) Uh, i love that one well done perfect yeah that's it might be one of your best it's probably on probably all time yeah yeah needs to be needs to be mentioned as well 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 done all right lucilla who is it warren uh, Lucilla, um, smart, loving, uh, smart enough to be able to manipulate and work around her sadistic, fucked up brother. Um, you know, in a woman, uh, she has a, a statesman quality about her. Like, it, it could certainly, uh, country would have been better off if she was emperor versus Commodus when uh, when Marcus Aurelius died. Uh, my Lucilla, uh, Carrie Mulligan. Mm, nice. Oh, so, so good. And we haven't used her a lot on the show, but every movie I've seen her in, my first time I saw her was Drive. Uh, but she can really hold the camera, and uh, with a part where she says more with her face than dialogue, uh, Carrie Mulligan is uh, would be terrific. All right, Phil, who do you have? 
No, I, I love that. And it's, uh, that's the challenging thing is we get to the end, the, you know, the season finale here is, you know, with our rule to only recast an actor one time each for each of us, you know, we, we, we've saved some of these names to the end. And now that we're using them, it's just like, I can't fault you for that choice. It's, it's, a, she's a, an incredible actress. One yeah. of the, one of the, the top, top of her game. Thomas I mean, and young woman, most recently terrific in that. Yeah. I mean, one of the best actors period right now, I, I thought of a similar line of thinking, I, you know, as we have with a lot of these recastings on this film, um, I went with Emily Blunt, you know, someone that is the Fuck. So, yeah, so sophisticated good. by all intents and purposes, a different time, different, you know, different culture she could be emperor they're both so good i, I hate uh hate, hate the job for uh for the judge here because they're those both those are both really good yeah that that's tough choice well we can't even argue against each other we're no, just gonna we have to yeah, look to the honor that's yeah, what it is both, they're both they're great both yeah are great carrie mulligan's gonna take this one. Oh. yeah all right all right now this might might seem a little awkward gentlemen but Commodus is going to be my tiebreaker if we need one. Oh, okay. Looking weirdo of the bunch. Okay. <laughs> okay. Well, I'll Bob tell you. Bob is the weirdo of the bunch, so I figure I, I could see why he would assign <laughs> <laughs> the, the, There has been two characters in my life played by an actor that they played so well that made you hate them so much that they almost had to earn back your trust as an actor because you're like, no, screw that guy. And that is how well Commodus was played. Yeah. Who is the other Originally. one? I'm curious. Who is the other the role? The other one is Paris, Orlando Bloom's character in Troy. Weird yeah. that both of them came from a sword and sandals epic like the <laughs> film like this. Wow. Okay. But Commodus, I, I just had such a hard time forgiving this actor mm. as an actor and not seeing him as Commodus, this despisable human being. And ah, it was so well played. This is this is an amazing acting job. So Bring it. Who's your Commodus? Who do we hate forever because of one role? Well, the Commodus, uh, you know, power hungry, immoral, and embittered son. The, the person in real life Commodus was uh, tall, handsome, and athletic. So when they were casting the part, they, they were looking to go that route originally. But, but Joaquin Phoenix was just so perfect for it. He ended up getting it. Uh, for my Commodus, I mean, we're talking a petulant boy emperor, a whiny little bitch. Uh, you have to have a, an actor who can to pull that off. And that's uh, uh, easier said than done. Ansel Elgort. And when you talk about the look of the period, I think he also checks that box as well. Yeah, I did consider Ansel Elgort. I love him. He's almost got too much of a protagonistic quality to me. He's like too much of a pretty boy. I'm not saying he couldn't do it by any means. I feel like there were well, Commodus was a pretty boy, and a lot but, of no, those you're, you're thinking about real emperors. life. We're, we're talking about the portrayal of the character on film here, and there is a sleaziness, a distrust. Well, no, they ended up because Joaquin Phoenix was so perfect for it. They went that route. They kind of went that way for the actor. So we're recasting mm-hmm. it now. All options are on the table. Mm. Yeah, but 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 that worked though. I mean, that's what you see out of the character is that innate sleaziness and whatnot, and that d- distrust. Uh, I, I'm going to book in the season nicely here for you, Warren. You casted him as your Batman uh, in uh, Batman Begins. I'm going to use him as my Commodus, the villain in Gladiator. That is Austin Butler as my Commodus. Up and coming named, much like Joaquin Phoenix was, didn't have a ton of credits at the time. Uh, someone where this is going to put him on the map could potentially, mm. you know, p- showcase his the skills that he has. Yeah, people knew who he was, though. People yeah, well, I, what I most know Austin Butler in his text and Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, a, yeah, a small sure. character, but I think for this, he's got that that quality you're looking for in your Commodus. Hmm. 
<laughs> Texas Commodus, interesting. I mean, look, they're, Austin Butler's a great actor, so I know he's got the range to pull it off. I just think, uh, again, going with the period of the time, the entitled petulant boy emperor uh who historically when you look at a lot of those boy emperor they had it all king tut they were they they had it all and they were they were they were bastards uh i I just think ansel elgort's perfect ansel elgort is very likable okay when everything i've seen him in he's very likable so dicaprio is very likable and he played calvin candy and Django. doesn't mean a great actor can't play a part like this in a movie like this you have a lead he played that older though he when he was a little bit you know later in life he didn't play that when he was in his 20s you know he played man in an iron mask and that had that side to it too so yeah uh, yeah yeah. you can't put these guys in a box again i love them both uh it's hard to pick from but i i do believe that this playing a a time period like this has a a certain look about the face and i i think ansel elgort is the better casting thank you oh man that's awful disagree he's too much of a good guy no awful that being said maximus god warren Who's your Maximus? General Maximus Desmus Meridius, commanders of the Northern Army, loyal to the true emperor Marcus Aurelius. My Maximus, man. The man every... The man we all want to be. This guy is brave. He's daring, courageous. He's loyal. He's honorable. He's just a motherfucking <laughs> badass of the highest order. Uh, okay, there, there's a list of actors I had in consideration here, and, and you're pulling from a list. Um, first one I thought of was uh, uh, John David Washington. Um, okay. He was, I had him in play, Mike, Michael Fassbender, Tom Hardy, Chris Evans, even The Rock, but... No, not The Rock. Yeah, you got to think about him at least. I gotta, you know, I'm taking in ticket sales in consideration. I'm the studio chief. I got to think about these things. But my Maximus, Chris Hemsworth. Okay. Well, I mean, you talk, you, you, the argument about having the face for the time period is kind of falling apart here with Chris Hemsworth. That man, he's too beautiful, too modern looking. He does not fit this era. Talented actor. I love him. I'm going to play pull- Greek God. I mean, we're, we're, they're wearing robes and he's got a sword. We can make it work. We're, we're probably adding a few million to the box office. Well, here's the thing, too. I didn't know this. I thought of Chris Hemsworth. Then in doing research of the film, I found that a potential sequel is in the works and Chris Hemsworth would be playing the Maximus role with Ridley Scott returning to direct. So talk about being spot motherfucking on Chris Hemsworth. A lot of that has to do with him, him and Russell Crowe working together on the new Thor film. It's not been determined what he would play or if he'd be a producer or have a part in it. Anyway, that's that movie may not even 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 happen. So I wouldn't put too much stock in that for your recasting choice. No, I didn't. I'm we just saying know, it's a hell of a coincidence. We all know it is a coincidence. I'll give you that. We all know though that the the only choice for Maximus and the best choice and the choice you would have gone with had you not used him this season. Is Tom Hardy? Is me Maximus? No, it's me. I already used me. I I, I want you too. So I've already yeah. So second choice, the second choice would then would be Tom Hardy. My Tom Hardy. I had him on my list. Tom Hardy's great. I love Tom Hardy. And by on your list, you mean you had to mention him because you hated that you couldn't use him because he's that fucking good of a casting, Phil. Yes, thank you. I, I got the first one, lost four in this episode, and then got the last one. But that's the last one of the season, so I'll take it. Yeah. Victory! Gentlemen, recasting court is adjourned. All right, fan theory time. So, pretty light on fan theories as for Gladiator as far as it goes. Um, one of a popular one out there is, you know, 
the character is really dead, like he imagines heaven and running his hand through the wheat field. You know, he talks about to his soldiers before the battle with the, the, the Germanic tribes, you know, if you find yourself in a green field, you're already dead. And the fan theory for is that Maximus dies in that battle and the rest is anyway I don't like those fan theories I've talked about that before they're very lazy to say oh it's, it's all in the character's head now one fan theory that is not talked about a ton but there's enough of um, and that usually makes the best ones is that it's out there just a little bit to where you can ask questions about it nothing proves or disproves it one way or the other it, it's the answer to the question of who is Lucius's true father? Is it Varus that they talk about in the movie, or is it Maximus? No, I think Maximus's relationship with her happened a long time ago, but then I think in the sequels that were potentially discussed, they were going to end up making Lucius uh, Maximus's son, so I don't know. I think it could that, that could probably end up going either way, depending on who writes the fucking script of the sequel. It could. It could, yeah. I mean, you're right. The movie portrays it that uh, Lucilla and Maximus's relationship was many years prior. So much so like it was like when they were kids and that it has no relevance in the day. Like they have no romantic relationship whatsoever in the movie in present day. Like they don't even hint at it. It's not possible. I think she kisses him once, but it, it's they're not sleeping together. Right. And, and he kisses her back. But and that that's part of it. You could tell that there was some passion there, even if it was many years ago. It's kind of more of a goodbye thing, I think. They kind of know they may not see each other again versus like, uh, I love you or something like that. My biggest thing to debunk it is that he talks about how his son is eight and Lucius is also eight. You know, the the fact that he is, they're both so close in age, it's like. Yeah, and and Maximus is an honorable man. He wouldn't have been stepping out on his wife with with the emperor's daughter. Get the fuck out of here. For it to be true, it, it would have to go against everything you know well, about Just the to see the opening scene, how the disdain, you can see he has no interest in engaging with her in any politics. He just, he's retired from battle and wants to rest. So I th- he's a no-nonsense guy, and because of what we get from the character, you just, that can't be the case. Yeah, so that's more so as this, I, I, I agree with But you. the sequel, I could almost, I could definitely see them saying he's Maximus's son, and then we would buy it. So that's why I'm saying it could go either way in the future of the franchise. Yeah, it depends on the angle, right? But I would say, for what we know today, I would debunk it and say, no way. Yeah, from what we get from the movie, I, from the first one, I don't think so. And we'll close out the episode discussing the legacy of Gladiator. The film renewed interest in Roman history in the United States. Uh, the bios of Cicero and Aurelius uh, sales went through the roof after this movie. Big spike in their sales. And, and this became known as the gladiator effect. I think this even ended up trickling down, of course, into Hollywood. Uh, it revived the historical epic genre, which had kind of been dormant. Uh, we ended up getting The Last Samurai, Troy, King Arthur, Alexander, and 300, just to name a few. Uh, but those were all uh, big hits. They did. They made money at the box office. I mean, King Arthur, I don't think was really reviewed that great. Uh, Alexander wasn't either. <laughs> no, it wasn't. Yeah. And uh, King Arthur, I did see it in the theater. I was hyped to see it. And it's just not that good. Now, everyone that- was hyped for Troy. Remember Brad Pitt, Achilles? Yeah, man, yeah, this was all that we have Gladiator to thank for that wave of those movies. Uh, even Kingdom of Heaven, all that stuff. Which another Ridley Scott film. Yeah. But I, I would say out of all those that either 300 or Troy is ones that have stood stood up over the years a little bit. You know, Troy maybe from a quality yeah. perspective, it had a lot of big name, big good, big actors in it. But, sure. But it all goes back to the story. I mean, if Hollywood just wants to, okay, let's find 
the gladiator of this era of this particular historical timeline and they just try to shove a script through it's not going to it's not going to work you know yeah uh, and that's part of it and now despite the realism of the roman culture and ancient ancient rome and what they showed in the film not everything in the film was purely fictional and we've talked about a lot of the real characters marcus aurelius commodus maximus was based on narcissus and maybe a couple of other people as well but uh, well, it was were- based uh, on a, actually a handful of people it was a narcissist who was uh, who killed communists in real life spartacus you know who led a slave revolt as a gladiator uh Cincinnatus, uh, who was a farmer turned dictator, and then Marcus Nomus Mark Marcarinus. I probably didn't say that right. Uh, he was a trusted general of uh, Marcus Aurelius. So it was kind of a combination of all those characters. Yeah, Commodus uh, was murdered by the aforementioned Narcissus. Uh, Commodus was in his bathtub, and Narcissus was a wrestler. So he was strangled in his bathtub rather than killed in the gladiatorial arena in the Colosseum. But Commodus was the only emperor in uh, Roman history to actually fight in the arena as a gladiator. And what's funny enough is uh, a lot of the Roman soldiers, they would wound his opponent without the emperor knowing, uh, would stab uh, him in the back uh, before mm. they were to fight him. Uh, he, he killed a lot of animals in the in, in, uh, in the arena, too. Uh, they were kind of staged to his favor. The crowd liked him at first, but just like in the movie, they, they ended up turning on him. Yeah, uh, I do want to call out some uh, differences in the characters we talked about. Marcus Aurelius was not murdered by Commodus. In fact, they actually ruled together for about three years until Aure- uh, Marcus Aurelius died of plague, uh, like the version of like smallpox at the time. Yeah, and it didn't lead to the Republic. Uh, Rome never became a Republic. It actually led to the uh, year of five emperors where there was that many changes of power. So it kind of Rome was in a free-for-all after his death. Yeah. Now I think Commodus did go on to rule for like twelve years. In fact, the you know Well, after the, Commodus's death is what I mean. Yeah. Right. Okay, that's what you're saying. Yeah. Now the war with the Germanic tribes that they show in the beginning with the barbarian horde and whatnot, Marcus Aurelius didn't end that. Actually, ironically enough, that was ended by a peace treaty that Commodus negotiated. So he was the one responsible for that, which that would have been an interesting turn to have that in the film again. There's no redeeming qualities for the character. And then uh, one last big one here I'll call out is that the thumbs up and thumbs down in real life, it was reversed. Like thumbs yeah. down was actually a good thing. Uh, and the thumbs up was mean, hey, kill them. Thumbs up. Yeah, kill them. But to prevent confusion with moviegoers, they just kept it the way of to modern day meaning. Correct. Exactly. It means too much with culture. You would have been confused. Which if you're going to, I agree with taking creative license like that. It just makes yeah. much, in another situation like that where they don't want something to be anachronistic, uh, is uh, some elements that just wouldn't be believable, even though they were true back then. Like gladiators actually had endorsements with products back then. Yeah. But if they would have had that in the movie, people would be like, oh, that's bullshit. But no, no, it, that, that, that was actually the case. That's, I, I even found that hard to believe. I did too, yeah. But it makes sense, though. The money is always going to be a factor there. So I think when you talk about these films and their impact and like the historical genre itself, you're going to have some fact, you're going to have some fiction. 
Well, they took a lot of creative license. It's not a documentary, but Scott did make an effort to have historical accuracy. Uh, he did hire historians as advisors for authenticity. Now, some of those advisors ended up quitting because of the creative licenses that were taken. <laughs> right. uh, but man, I mean, the movie's based on a Roman Empire in the second century AD. Uh, you're going to have some things that are true and some that aren't. Uh, like, I mean, the costumes are all wrong in the movie. They're all wrong. Uh, they're all pulled from different periods, but it doesn't really matter. At the end of the day, that's not what a great picture <laughs> Here's the thing. I mean, here's the thing. No one watches Gladiator and thinks it's history. It's a movie. But if you take it and then you go and learn about the real history, isn't it doing its job to, to, I guess, create a thirst for that knowledge? Yeah, if it renews an interest in a genre, it gets more movies made like it, and people enjoy the movie, that's what it's all about. Even though the costumes may not be historically accurate, they work in the movie and they look fucking great. Great. Pop culture of Gladiator, 530 connections with other media. Uh, it's been spoofed in a handful of stuff I'm going to mention. Uh, there's been a handful of uh, some porn parodies and some softcore porn. Uh, go. Gladiator, exotic versus the lesbian <laughs> it's warriors. It's 34, a bunch of stuff man. Like it's that. everything. Yeah, yeah, it's everything. Some uh, mainstream films on a lighter note. Uh, a Knight's Tale, uh, Shrek, The Coliseum Entrance, yeah. um, Scary Movie 2, Family Guy, uh, Boss Baby Family Business, and, uh, of course... The Simpsons. Wolfus Ray! Bad guy! Someone's in here! Hey, pal. Should we call it a tie? All hail our new champion, Mr. Plow himself, Obesius. One I thought you were going to say is, um, and it's maybe not a direct reference, but in Star Wars Episode Two: Attack of the Clones, which entered production shortly after Gladiator came out, there's a whole yeah the uh, j- j- the arena battle is all yeah whole gladiatorial set piece yeah which I was leaving that to you because I knew you would oh thank and you and you did I not fail that. me that was a test and you did not fail you yes. are hardcore Star Wars you you gave up a character earlier casting because <laughs> of it and then, yeah. yeah. Dude, if anyone from Star Wars is listening, you should be getting like free tickets because of that. It's crazy. Uh, anyway, associated with Disney. Come on, give them some set passes. Thank you. But for for recastings, you know the strategy going into season five. Just every t- if you use a Star Wars character, I'll just I'll just concede. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Don't, that's <laughs> it's like your that's that's like your uh, kryptonite now. Um, all-time list for Gladiator, uh, 1,001 Movies That You Must See Before You Die by Steven Schneider. Uh, and Maximus ranked uh, number 12th on the Total Film's Best Heroes and Villains list. Wow. Uh, 35th on Empire's 100 Greatest Movie Characters. And 50th on AFI's 100 Years, 100 Heroes and Villains. It was also nominated for five other AFI lists. That is the only AFI list that made. It was nominated for quote, score, top genre film and epic and inspiring, and then the top movie list. It didn't make any of those. Kind of surprising. I wonder how much of the character lists that it made, heroes and villains and whatnot, goes back to the name Maximus. What a name. I love that. Such a badass. Yeah, badass. Well, you know, we talk about some of the films like Star Wars, like Darth Vader's a great movie villain, and I know Maximus isn't that iconic, but he is on a short list of great movie heroes, like Indiana Jones or uh, you know Han Solo. Again, maybe not as iconic, but uh, he's ranking you know in the lower part of the top 25 or 30, but Maximus is on the short list of great movie 
heroes. And uh, uh, he's well represented on those lists. But the film is uh, underrepresented on AFI. Need an updated list, AFI. Come on, it's been 2007. It's been 15 years. Let's get it together. I agree. He said, yeah. I mean, it's true, though. We mentioned a sequel earlier. Hasn't been one, but there's been four different instances where it almost happened. The first being June 2001, uh, a prequel or sequel that centered on uh, Lucius. Uh, But it obviously never ended up happening. Uh, The second instance, May 2006, uh, Russell Crowe favored uh, a fantasy element of Maximus being revived, kind of like where he's interacting with the Roman gods and they give him a second chance at life. Uh, It sounds ridiculous, but it could have maybe kind of been interesting, but you got Zeus maybe rolling in there. Broach into the fantastical elements of the Roman uh, culture. Yeah, That's one way to bring Maximus back. Uh, and then the uh, third instance in March 2017, uh, again, it was the issue of reviving Maximus. I guess that one didn't stick with the different rewrites. Uh, Paramount greenlit development uh, in November 2018, but then it just kind of went and turned around and never happened. Nothing kind of came of it. And then most recently, April 2021, Chris Hemsworth w- uh, approached Russell Crowe. Uh, they were working together on the new Thor picture and uh, about working together on a Gladiator sequel. And apparently a script is being uh, reworked. So we'll see. I read also that as a recent as September 2021, Ridley Scott has said, who is also going to be attached to Gladiator 2, if and when it happens, he has said that it is next on his list after he completes Kitbag, the Napoleon Bonaparte uh, film with Joaquin Phoenix you mentioned earlier. Mm, mm. Excited for both of those. Well, hope it happens. I do, but I would. I don't think we're going to get it before 2025, 2026. It's going to be a while. Yeah, it's and Ted Fry of the Seattle Times summed it up best when he said, quote, there's a thrilling sense of transcendence that won't let go from the first masterfully constructed frames in Scott's modern epic of ancient Rome. It's that very rare feeling that you're settling into a movie whose individual elements are so finely attuned that they fuse into a singular construct of pure entertainment, unquote. That is going to do it for this episode of Replay Value. Thank you so much for listening. The Replay Value podcast is hosted by me, Philip Reinerson, and my brother, Warren Paul. Our recasting judge is Bob Thompson. Produced, edited, and directed by Waldo Pickles Productions, and dedicated to our father, who we have to thank for our love of cinema. Please be sure to subscribe to the podcast, and if you like what you hear, take the time to rate, review, and share with a friend. Visit us on our website, replayvaluepod.com, and follow us on Twitter at replayvaluepod. We are available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Season 5 premiere will be on Tuesday, April 5th. Thank you for tuning in. We'll see you then. Bye. Bye! This has been a Waldo Pickles production. 